Welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Johnette Magner. Today we are talking to Dr. James Barnes. He is the Bariatric Chief of Surgery at Christus Highland Medical Center, and we will be taking your calls throughout the 30-minute show. And as a reminder, please make sure that you are in a quiet room if you choose to call and that your TV is turned all the way down. Our number is gonna appear on the screen throughout the show, but let me give it to you now. It's 318 is the area code, 219-4569. Again, you'll see it at the bottom of your screen. And welcome, Dr. Barnes. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's so good to have you. So let's start first with a discussion of the problem that you address as a doctor, and that is morbid obesity. How big a problem is it in this area of the country? Well, in, in any place in the country, it's a problem, but it's certainly more prevalent in this area than it is in a lot of places. In fact, Shreveport always ranks in the top five uh, of obesity per capita. So it, it, it's, a, it's a big problem here. Um, and, um, uh, you know, when you look at the, you know, I think it's probably one of the biggest health issues there is you know, overall, because there's mm -hmm. so many other health issues that go along with being morbidly obese and, uh, you know, diabetes and high blood pressure and sleep apnea and reflux and joint problems. And, and you know, I could, I could give you a hundred things that are caused or worsened by obesity. And so it really is a, a problem on all aspects of the medical scale. So let's talk more about those problems, um, because I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate the connection between carrying a lot of excess weight and the pro you know because so many people as they age develop some of these issues anyway right. um, so what are what are the main ones that you see that are really linked if you're morbidly obese you can expect what uh, to happen in terms yeah and so there's several and and you know one of the things that we see is that you know typically when you're younger you don't have a lot of these problems and so a lot of the patients I see are really pretty healthy overall uh, these are typically patients in their 20s and 30s and 40s. Now, as you start getting into your 50s and 60s with morbid obesity, that's when you see all of these medical issues start to start to creep in. Diabetes is probably the most significant one of those because it has so many catastrophic side effects long term. And so, uh, um, I always love seeing when we do a gastric bypass on a patient with diabetes, with type 2 or adult mm -hmm. onset diabetes we see about an 85, 90% cure rate of that. And it is fast, it's within about a day and a half after surgery, their diabetes is gone for the vast majority of people. Off their medicines, normal blood sugars in, in 36 to 48 hours after surgery. That is stunning. Yeah, it really is. When you, when you have an operation with, with such a high cure rate of a disease that has you know, so many problems. You know, I always tell people diabetes, you know, in the short term, it's just kind of a nuisance. You got to watch your blood sugars. You got to, you know, take a pill. Uh, but it's the long-term stuff where you really get into problems when you know kidney failure and blindness and amputations, and all of these problems that that, that you know are very common with diabetes as people get older with that. And then when you have an operation that you can do that is most likely going to cure them of that issue, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah, I, I have a family member who is diabetic, and I was with that family member when when uh, he had a toe amputated, and uh, you know that that yeah. has really stuck in my mind. And I, I don't think a lot of people understand that those are very real risk. And he's also blind in one eye, yeah. so uh, yeah. diabetes has 
such serious consequences. And the idea of being able to eliminate it as a problem in one day is just startling to I know, me. it really is. I'm, I'm always, and I see this every, every week, every day, and I'm always still kind of amazed by it, how it can, it can turn around that quickly. So let's talk about weight, and I know you really deal with uh, people who are morbidly obese, but you know, as a, as a uh, 50-something-year-old female, I have struggled with my weight, as have all my friends. Why, why is dieting and maintaining a healthy weight so dadgum hard? <laughs> well, it is hard. Uh, it is hard for some people. Sometimes this, this is a genetic issue. You know, we all know people that can eat or drink whatever they want all day long and not gain a pound. And so, you know, sometimes it is, you know, genetics or metabolism or whatever you want to call that. Um, but, but it's mostly diet related and, and diet plays the biggest part. Exercise, honestly, is not a huge part of weight loss. You know, it, it's great for you and I encourage people to do it but it's not really much of a weight loss tool. Weight gain or loss is mostly tied into what you're eating and drinking. Uh, and, and part of it is just, you know, educating people to make better choices. And, you know, we do an operation to help people lose weight, but it's, it's not just the magic bullet that you do a surgery and then you're done. I mean, like, uh, this is a lifelong battle even after surgery. And, and, and so that's why we try to guide people. We have a very extensive aftercare program uh, and, you know, I, I try to see people back for life as much as they're, they're willing to come in uh, because I think that makes a big difference. And, and uh, you know, because even after the surgery, you still have to, you know, make good choices, um, you know, about what you're eating and drinking. Yeah, so let's get into the nitty gritty of the two types of surgery. So please explain both of those and how they work and, and how you and the patient decide which one that they really need. Yeah, so the, the way it kind of starts, we do a, a seminar every Tuesday morning for new patients. It's a small group, it's usually six or eight people. Uh, and they come in and we spend some time just kind of going over all the information about weight loss surgery and then I'll meet with each of them individually afterwards and then we kind of tailor, uh, you know, a plan for each patient individually based on their medical issues, their weight, what they, you know, what they want to do, you know, um, and so we really try to individualize, you know, the surgery for each person. So the operations, we do two operations, which is the gastric bypass and the sleeve gastrectomy. Um, both are great operations. There are pros and cons to both, and that's one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about in the seminar, um, advantages and disadvantages of each. But we see, you know, really good weight loss. And both operations downsize the stomach, and that's a big part of what they do. So you fill up faster, you can't eat as much food. Both operations, people's appetite goes down pretty dramatically, and that's part mm -hmm. of how they work as well. And then with the gastric bypass, it has the added component of the malabsorption where you don't because you're bypassing part of the test and you don't absorb the calories out of the food quite as much as you did uh, before surgery. Is one much more common or more popular than the other? Uh, you know, they both are. I, I do probably 60 to 70% gastric bypass and, and 30 to 40% sleeve. So I do, you know, a few more bypasses and sleeve. Overall, I like that operation a little bit better. Uh, than the sleeve for most people, not everybody, and, and again, that's where we get into the individual uh, uh, plan for each patient. Um, but uh, I do tend to prefer and do a little more of the bypass over the sleeve. So how how are they are they different aside from just you know the the procedure is different, but 
what is the difference in in terms of outcomes for patients? What, yeah, yeah, so what we see, um, we see with the bypass, we see, a, to me it's a little better operation. We see a little better weight loss with it. You're a little less likely to gain weight back over time. Um, we see a better resolution of the health problems associated with obesity on some of those things that we talked about earlier. Uh, the flip side is that the bypass is a slightly bigger operation than a sleep, and so um, that means the risks are slightly higher, and that's something we spend a lot of time talking about. They're still low with both operations, but it's a, you know, it's a little bigger surgery than, it is, than the sleeve is, and so that's kind of the trade-off. So when people come to you and they sit in your office to, for the orientation, what is the big driver for them? Or some of the big, is, is, it more, is it more, I don't like how I look, I'm tired of being overweight, or I'm, I'm really scared about diabetes and all of these other problems that I'm beginning to develop. What, what, are, what are you seeing as the um, big motivators? It's different for every person. Um, some of it is kind of age related. You know, mm -hmm. you know, the people that are younger, that are in their 20s and 30s, tend to be driven more by, you know, I want to feel better, I want to look better, I want to be able to do more things and be more active, I want to be able to get up off the floor when I'm playing with my kids, um, things like that. People that are a little older in their 50s and 60s when all those health problems start creeping in um, also have those same issues, mm -hmm. but then it's also the medical part of it too that, that, that they want to they correct. and, and and try to get off of their medications, and most people do get off of most of their medications that they're taking before surgery. Uh, are there people who ever come in and and they're 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 past their fifties and sixties, and they're in their seventies and eighties, and at at that point, you know, it's it's is there a good? I guess my better question: Is there a good time to address it or a better time than others? Because I would imagine as you get a little bit older, recovery is harder and riskier. Yeah. And so, you know, an 85-year-old person who wants it might not be as good a candidate as a 55. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, in general, the younger you are, the better for any kind of surgery, because the older we are, the, you know, the risks go up with surgery. And so um, we, we have a, uh, a cutoff of age 70 now ah, um, okay. because above 70, uh, you know, the risks start getting more substan substantial, you know, risk of a heart attack or a stroke or breathing issues or, uh, you know, things like that. And so um, because of that, um, that's, that's sort of my, my cutoff now is age 70. That we, Any pre-existing conditions that make somebody uh, a, a not a good candidate? Uh, there are a few. They're not real common. Mm -hmm. um, every once in a blue moon, we'll have somebody that, um, and again, that's part of you know, uh, part of my job is to determine not only what operation we're going to do, but if we're going to do an operation at all. And mm -hmm. so there is an occasional patient that will come in, and, and it's always about weighing risk and benefits. And mm -hmm. you know, every once in a while, I'll have somebody come in, and I just feel like it's just too high of a risk for them. Now, sometimes we'll get other doctors to help us with that. We'll send them to see a heart doctor or a lung doctor and, and to kind of get a clearance for surgery or you know, get their input on whether or not they feel like this is a good candidate for surgery. Uh, and yeah, every once in a while I'll see somebody that's, that I just say, I just think you're too high risk and this is not a good option. But it doesn't yeah. happen too often. Okay, and it appears we have a caller right now. Tara, right. welcome to the show and please ask your question. Hi, Dr. Barnes. Can you tell me or help me understand why this obesity is so prevalent now as opposed to in the 60s or 50s when I was growing up? 
and I, I just saw this, you know, the, um, just the, the, well, just why is it so prevalent now? And why are these little kids who do not buy groceries or cook for themselves now being um, targeted for the surgery? Well, I think it's, um, there's a couple different questions in there, but I, I, I think the change over the years is just the change in diet. And, and you know, uh, back, you know, years ago, there wasn't all the processed food, there wasn't all of the, the sodas. I mean, some of it was around, but it wasn't as common as we see today. All the fast food that is, is just exploded out there. Um, and, and those are some of the things that, that will definitely cause weight gain. And so I just think that that stuff's a lot more prevalent than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and we see that in, you know, childhood obesity, you sort of mentioned that is a, is a big issue too. And that, that number has gone up dramatically. And, and again, I think it's related to the same stuff. Now, I don't offer surgery. There are a few centers that will do adolescent bariatric <laughs> surgery. Um, I do not, my, my lower, you know, I told you 70 was my upper cutoff, 18 is my lower cutoff. And so I don't operate on anybody younger than 18. Um, you know, there are some centers and in the right patient, I think it's still a good option for an adolescent. Uh, for us, we say 18 and above though. So for it to be classified as a disease, how much, um, how, how big of a part does personal choice or personal accountability play into it? Well, I, I think mean, I, I deny myself constantly. I'm always, I mean, it's hard to deny yourself. I do it, you know, 23 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I think that's, that. that's definitely a big part of it. Uh, you know, what we see is for a lot of these patients, it's, it's an actual addiction to food. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, depending on what your thoughts are on addiction, but, but most of us believe that addiction in and of itself is a, is a disease as well. And, and people that, that suffer with that, whether it's an addiction to food or drugs or alcohol or gambling or whatever, uh, you know, I think some people struggle with that more than others. And so I think a lot of our patients really do truly have a food addiction. And while you can say, oh, you just need to have, you know, willpower and accountability and, and all that kind of stuff, I, I think for some people that's easier than it is for others. And people with morbid obesity, um, you know, it's more than just a willpower issue. I think, I think, I think it's, it's, it's the addiction makes that where that's not always a great option or, or they're able to do that. So the addictive food is all this fast food and all this processed food that I did not have growing up in 1960. And that that kind of food is just more addictive to them. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's part of it. I, um, you know, probably there is. You know, I, I, you know, most people aren't addicted to broccoli, uh, but yeah. they are addicted to the you know the the fast food and the sweets and stuff. So I, yeah, I think so. I think it, it you know the worse the foods are, the more there tends to be addictions towards. Okay, so you brought up a, a topic, um, food addiction, that I think is so fascinating. Um, our, you know, we have the high fructose corn syrup, you know, the preservatives and things that are, that are in food now, which make those foods even different from what they, they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. But you also have emotional addiction. Yes. And so is the addiction more addicted to this sugar hit or is it eating for comfort? And I ask that in part too, because one of the things we know is that people, you have a lot of people now, especially, and it was exacerbated by COVID, 
who have a lot of anxiety and depression. And so, you know, the the comfort that comes with food right. has become, I think, even more attractive. Am I, am I right? No, I think that's true. I think, you know, part of addiction, and again, this is all addiction, not just food, is, is people wanting to change the way they feel. You know, yeah. people having uncomfortable feelings that they don't want to deal with, and how can I change that to feel better? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, whether that's alcohol or drugs or food, you know, that's what they do. And so, you know, they have whatever feelings they're not wanting to deal with. I'm, I don't like how that feels, so I'm gonna go eat a box of Oreos or, right. you know, whatever, you know, that is a bag of potato chips or, uh, and again, it tends to be more junk food, but it is that sort of that comfort that, uh, you know, sort of self-treating your anxiety or your depression or, uh, and some people it's the opposite. Some people eat because they're happy. Some people, mm -hmm. you know, when yeah. they're in a good mood or when things are going well, that triggers them to eat more. So, yeah, you know, I always tell people hunger is, is one reason why people eat, but there's a lot of other reasons too. And so how does bariatric surgery uh, help the person who has a food addiction, whether it's emotional or it's sugar? Yeah. So. Um, it, it does several things. First of all, it does decrease your hunger, so you're not very hungry all the time. Um, it does decrease your ability to eat a lot of food. You know, even if you wanted to go eat a big plate of something, you can't do it anymore now because your stomach is so much smaller. Now, some people that have true addictions and true, uh, you know, psychological component to this can struggle with that, and that's why we do other things as well. For example, we do a psychiatric evaluation on everybody before surgery oh. to help address some of those issues on the front end. Uh, we do a, a support group that meets monthly. Uh, we're doing one um, uh, Thursday of this week. Um, and, uh, and so we do a monthly support group. Now COVID sort of wrecked that for a little while, but we're, yeah. we're back on those again now, which is great. Uh, and then some people I will encourage to see, you know, a therapist or somebody like that afterwards too, if they're really still struggling with those issues. So that's really interesting. So treating the psychological piece is a huge part of this whole process. Yeah, it's much more than just going in and doing an operation. And, and so when it comes to the psychological piece, if people don't address it, are, I would assume they're far less likely to, to truly be successful. Yeah, and what happens with those folks typically is, yeah, you know, like everybody's gonna lose weight initially for the most part, mm -hmm. and, and you know, because you know, after surgery, you're just, you're gonna lose weight. But what, what happens with those folks is that, oh, you know, may, they get out into the second, third year, and then that weight starts creeping up again as they start drift back into those old habits. And so that's one reason why I encourage people to keep their follow-ups. Again, we talked about the aftercare program we have. And, you know, I tried, you know, uh, I like when people come in on a, you know, somewhat regular basis because then we can sort of help with that. It, you know, keeps them focused on it better. If it does start creeping up, we can do some things to help reverse that. Um, but, yeah, that, I mean, that can be a problem we see. So why does folks. it start creeping up? Is it that your stomach just begins to stretch again or something? No, some of that? it what, doesn't. What it? That's a misconception a ah, lot of people have. Okay. They think, oh, I've stretched my stomach, but it's not that. The stomach, I mean, it can happen, but that's not very common. Usually mm -hmm. it's drifting back into those old habits. You know, it's, I'm gonna go back to drinking sweet tea again, or sodas, or fruit juice, or I'm gonna start, you know, pretty soon you know, I get busy and I don't have time to fix a meal, so I'm gonna swing by McDonald's on the way home. And then all of a sudden it's once a week and then three times a week and then every day, you know, get the fast food. 
or it's into the snacking. And, and a lot of times the snacking is not because you're hungry, it's just because you're kind of, you know, you're home at night and you're watching TV and you just kind of want something to, you know, do, you know. And so, uh, you know, there are healthy snacks and there are not so healthy snacks. And so if you start getting into, well, I'll just get this bag of potato chips and, and, and you know, eat off of that tonight. So it's, you know, it's the snacking too. So th those are always the three areas I tell people to, to be careful of after surgery long term is, is liquid calories, fast food, and snacking. And the, the support group, I would imagine, is really helpful because basically they become your accountability partners. Yeah. Are there a lot of people for whom that support group is absolutely essential to their sustaining their yeah. program and success? I think it's, it's very helpful. Now, some people aren't, aren't, you know, it's not everybody that's going to come to it. But, uh, but, but, you know, I, I'm glad to see that we're finally getting these up and running again. We did them on Zoom for a while too, but, but I, you know, the in-person ones are just better. And so, you know, we did our first one just, you know, not too long ago and we had like 25 people there. It was a great turnout and, and a really good meeting. And I think it just helps, um, helps people, you know, first of all, see that there's others going through this and maybe struggling with some of the same things. Uh, I think it does add a little accountability there as well. Uh, it just keeps anything that keeps you focused on your weight and, and, and not regaining weight over time is helpful and that's just one, one of the many tools that we use. What is the recovery time following bariatric surgery? Yeah, it's not bad and that's evolved over the years. Part of that now is because of how we do the surgery and we can talk about that a little bit mm -hmm. too. So yeah. the short answer to your question, it's an overnight stay in the hospital. So it's just one night in the hospital, you go home the next day. Um, most people are back to work in about a week and a half to two weeks. Um, the vast majority. Complete recovery is about a month or so where you're fully 100%, but, uh, but, but typically about a week and a half, two weeks is when, when most people are going back to work. Now part of that, because that's a pretty quick recovery. That's when you're talking quick, about yeah. you know, taking out two thirds of a person's stomach and then they're yeah. going back to work in a week and a half. Yeah. Uh, part of that is because of this great technology that we now have to do the surgery, which is robotic surgery. And that's mm -hmm. You know, we've started doing these several years ago all robotically, and I do 100% of them that way now, where, where we've, um, um, and, and just briefly what robotic surgery is, you know, laparoscopic surgery, I think people are, a lot of people are familiar with, where right. we're working through the little incisions, standing up at mm -hmm. the table. And, but with robotic surgery, now instead of me up at the table moving the instruments around, the robot is at the table, and the instruments are attached to the robotic arms, and then I'm over on the other side of the room, sitting at a console and then using hand and foot controls, I'm controlling the robotic arms. And so it's still me doing the movements, but it's through the robot. And that allows us to do so much more stuff because of the different instrumentation. And so it gives me a lot more dexterity in there. We can do things differently. And what that translates over to the patient is less pain afterwards. Uh, we've cut the hospital stay in half from two nights to one night. Uh, the recovery has gotten gotten quicker than it was just straight laparoscopically so we see some really big advantages to that and so most people um, you know you know it's not it's not a bad recovery so robotics is fascinating to me how did you go from doing it yourself there and with the patient right in front of you to learning the robotic surgery is that a difficult transition for it's a, doctor? a very difficult transition it's a very steep learning curve to, to learn uh -huh. that for sure and so you know and when i first started doing these that and that was almost 27 years ago now uh, we did them through all a big open incision so mm -hmm. everybody got a big up and down scar in the belly right back yeah. then and then in the late 90s we started doing it laparoscopically and that had its own learning curve with that as well 
Uh, robotically, is, it's a totally different technology. And so, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it, it, I spent a year working and learning this before I did the first one on a, on a, on a patient. And so, you know, that's a lot, of, you know, a lot of training, a lot of simulator stuff, um, going to observe other robotic surgeons, going to courses where we would operate on, on you know, pigs and cadavers and things like that. Um, and, and so it was a year-long process before I did my first robotic case. So. And this makes me fully appreciate the skill level and the training that you had to go through to, to be a, a, an effective and, and safe doctor to, to go see. Are there people out there practicing in your field uh, who are um, maybe not as as safe and well trained? And how can somebody how can somebody know you you want it, you want somebody with A, B, and C? Right. Something part like of it that. is you want to look at their experience, and mm -hmm. and I think that's a big part. You know, one of the things that um, Intuitive is the company that developed this robot that we use, and so one of the things that they have done, and I think is great, is they don't just allow anybody to just jump in and start doing it. You know, they have a list of you know steps one through a hundred that you have to do before they will allow you to do the surgery with the robot, and so they require all this training stuff we just talked about you know, they require it as they should because they, you know, it, it serves them well to have good outcomes also. And so, uh, you know, they make sure that anybody that is a robotic surgeon has done all of the, the proper training. So, you know, medical tourism, a lot of people uh, have always come to the United States when they want the best and, and, and the most skilled. Boy, we also sometimes see people going out of the country because it's a lot less expensive to do it in certain places. Do you see people ever do that, and do they come back and, and end up seeing you because they it yeah. didn't go as well as they had hoped? Yeah, we do see a lot of people that go to Mexico for bariatric surgery, and that's uh, that's common. Well, I'm going to say common. It does happen. Um, um, you know, sometimes they go down there and do fine, but I, I you know, I've, I've taken care of a number of patients that have had you know real bad complications going down there and coming back too and so we see you know, sometimes some real crazy stuff when people come back and have had their surgery down there so um, you know not a huge fan of that you know the nice thing now is that and some people don't realize it but most of the time this is covered by insurance and and so wow. most of the time people don't have to do an extreme measure like that now it's not all insurances but it's the vast majority of them and I would say 95% of the cases I do are through insurance, and you know a lot of people think, oh, well, you you know you have to pay cash to get weight loss surgery, but it's it's really not. I mean, we take all insurances, uh, and most do cover. We uh, we take Medicare, uh, and they usually, uh, not usually, they do cover. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't accept Medicaid as a primary, uh, but we do take Medicare and all commercial insurances. And so most of the people that are doing this, it's through their insurance, which is great. Yeah, so that is incredible. That so often you think of this as an elective surgery, right. but because it's covered by insurance, it's really it, it can't be. Obviously, they don't view it that way. Right, and that's I think, and, and this is something that's changed over the years. But I, you know, they have you know come to realize that it, like you said, it's not just a cosmetic. It's not a tummy tuck. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's surgery that changes people's health, and so. You know, and they look at it from a cost perspective, and unfortunately, that's mostly what drives the insurance companies. And so, but they see that once you get out from surgery a little bit, now there's the upfront cost of the surgery, but then when people start getting off of all their medications yeah. and and you know their health improves so much, 
after two or three years, you know, it's saving them money on these patients uh, that right. have had their surgery. So this is a fascinating specialty. Tell me what made you go into it. How did it, how did it capture your imagination and drive you? Yeah, it's, um, I, re I mean, I re have a real passion for it and I really love it. What I like about bariatric surgery is that it combines the technical aspect. I mean, I love going in there and doing hard surgery and, and you know, I love operating and that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's great and, and the challenge of that. But it also, you know, for a general surgeon, say you're gonna fix a hernia, you go in, do the surgery, see them back once and then they're gone. But with these patients, we really develop a relationship with. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's almost like being a family practice doctor in a lot of ways. And that, you know, you, you see these patients usually for multiple visits before surgery, and then you're seeing them very frequently afterwards, especially in the first couple of years. And so you get to see the changes that yeah. people go through. And that's, I, you know, I just, I just never get tired of that. I, and I get to see that every week. People come in and tell me all the stuff that they can do now that they couldn't do before surgery. And, and that's just, it's really satisfying to see that and be a part of that. So tell me one or two things that they say. Um, it, a lot of it's about being able to do more stuff. You know, they feel mm -hmm. better, they, they can be more active, they can, you know, walk up stairs they you know they don't get short of breath they can get up off the floor you know a lot of times they'll you know can, they, they flew in an airplane for the first time in forever or they rode a roller coaster with their kids that they didn't think they would ever be able to do so some of it's that kind of stuff some of it's the medical stuff too uh, you know people will be off uh, you know they'll be taking you know 10 15 20 pills a day and and then a little while after surgery all they take is a multivitamin every day Okay. And, um, well, quickly, where are you located? Yeah, so we're at the Highland Clinic, mm -hmm. and you know the way to start the process is just call and and and, and we'll get it going. It's seven nine eight four four three three, and that's the way to get it started. All right, and thank you so much for joining us for Healthline Three. Hope you have a good day.